um, reading the text together, and then we'll discuss each verse more care carefully as we normally do. But um, before we begin reading our text in John, I, I do want to remind you about Hebrews 4.12, what Hebrews uh, 4.12 uh, says about um, reading and uh, the power of God's word. Uh, the writer of the Hebrews says, uh, for the word of God is living and active. Some translations, um, power, powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates or pierces, dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions or intent of the heart. So as we read this text today, let us now um, commit both our hearts and our minds to what the Lord has um, set before us uh, this morning as our passage encompasses um, the inerrant tension between the triumphant entry and the cross. And it illuminates it in terms of prophetic fulfillment robed in humility. It's a powerful text once again. So let's get into this and we can start seeing this. We are in John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. And this is the reading of God's living and active word. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So he took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it, for just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look! The world has gone after him. As I was studying and preparing this message, I was reminded this week of my son, Austin. And as many of you know, Austin is now in week six of his um, basic uh, training at Fort Jackson, South Carolina. And, and one of the things that um, brother um, Stephen, who's not here today, watching online, shared with us before um, he had left from his time in base up is is certainly one of the military's um, main goals is to essentially break you down in order to build you back up into the soldier or man or woman that they want you to be. And um, one of the things that soldiers um, go through is this systematic attempt of breaking down any expectations. Get rid of those expectations. Um, as the army will find different ways to unexpectedly pull the rug out from underneath you. And um, now during basic training, soldiers are sent out in a variety of, um, of course, training exercises and missions for a number of days. Um, the climate is um, damp, um, cold, of course, overnight, followed by the heat and humidity, certainly of the South Carolina time right now in the day. Um, there's very little sleep. And over the course of your couple of days, you are being tested with tactical training, field operations, and live firing exercises. Um, there, of course, is no running water where you're at, no facilities. Um, these field exercises are important for their training so they can experience just a taste of what it's like to be out in combat. And I've read at the end of some of these exercises, I'm curious to hear today, uh, from Austin, um, but they'll tell you that everything is done after your three or four day mission. And on your return, you start heading back to the base. And of course, on the way back, your hopes are high. Um, as you're looking forward to a nice hot meal, a warm shower, you're even missing your bunk at this point to sleep in. And right when 
those expectations are so close you can taste it. You are walking back to base. They pull the rug out from underneath you and they tell you, actually, we're staying out here for another night. And it's all part of the training to get you ready for when adversity comes, breaking you away from making these expectations. And I was reminded of that because uh, there is a sense in which this text is a dislocation of our expectations. Um, it is a change in our expectations as it relates to Jesus. And it certainly was for the crowd. Um, the crowd was expecting something else from this man. And though we may be familiar with the gospel story, and though we may understand the, the contours of, of this narrative and where it is all headed, I think for us the change in expectations is a continual one as we are going to try to seek to apply this text today to our lives. You see, the crowd's understanding of who the Messiah would be was this powerful David-type figure, King David, um, a great a political or military-type ruler who would overthrow the Roman Empire and restore Israel, of course, to her glory days. The people wanted a Messiah who would set up his kingdom now, and he would reign on their behalf. And he would elevate them, of course, as well. And he would bring them from their oppression and maybe even oppress those who had been oppressing them. That was their expectation. And as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, he doesn't meet it. In fact, he does the exact opposite. What we see is Jesus comes into Jerusalem as a humble, lowly servant who is entering into the city not to reign, but to die. We witness in these verses that at the same time the Lord is laying out the path of salvation, he is also establishing a pattern by which all of his disciples should live. We look at Jesus entering into Jerusalem and we understand that he is doing something unique. He is going to the cross and paying the price for our sins, something that we cannot do. And yet, at the same time, he's establishing a pattern by which we are to live. A pattern of humility and lowliness. And so the difficulty is to acknowledge that we all come here this morning with a certain amount of pride in our hearts. We all come here this morning with a certain amount of wanting life to go our own way. And the path of lowliness and humility that is shown for us in the person of Christ, even as he stares down to the cross, is something that we all need to learn. And that is the path of discipleship. This is the path by which we as the church honor the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said it this way in Philippians chapter 2, 1 through 8. Paul writes, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, a slave that could be translated, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Amen, indeed. So, the Holy Spirit here, through Paul, while in prison, 
uses the example of Christ's incarnation, his humiliation, even his crucifixion, to show us the humility and lowliness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he calls us to have the same mind which was also in Christ Jesus. Just a great text to meditate on as we consider the cross and we apply Christ's example of humility. Now, as we turn our attention to our text here in John chapter 12, you'll see uh, in your bulletin notes, I, I broke our verses up into essentially two parts. In the first section, we see the announcement of Jesus' arrival. And then in the second section is the response. The announcement in the first half, verses 12 through 15, comes through at least three different angles. So let's look at the first one, and this one comes from John the Apostle himself. In verse 12, John interjects into the story and gives us this detail. The announcement is, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So here's John's announcement of Jesus making his way to Jerusalem. And it may seem like this is just a passing comment um, in John's narrative, um, but there is much that he's saying here. Um, first of all, you'll notice that John makes mention of the crowd. The crowd, the large crowd that had come to the feast. And we've noted before that a feature of John's gospel is this crowd. Um, and that seems to just kind of gather around Jesus at various points of, of the story. And whenever we see this crowd gathering around Jesus, it looks really good. And it's a, a great encouragement to see this crowd seemingly affirm the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet when you read John's gospel closely, um, what you see is that the crowd were always having misbelief face about who Jesus Christ is. They were always eager to affirm something that they liked about Jesus and yet failing to truly believe in him in the manner in which he demands to be believed in. I think of the scene back, of course, in um, John chapter 6, after the miraculous feeding of the 5,000 of the fishes and the loaves. And it said in verse 14 that when the people saw the sign that Jesus had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Remember this? It, it looks so promising. This massive crowd identified Jesus as the prophet. The prophet, recalling all the way back to what Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. We spent many weeks on it some time ago. The one who God said, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. And it looked like there was this massive revival that was about to take place. But instead, verse 15, we read, Jesus perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew himself to the mountain by himself. But all throughout John, we've seen these crowds gathering around Jesus, and they're always attracted to him for the wrong reasons. Jesus would later say to them, you are seeking me not because you saw the sign, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You liked what I did for you. When, you. when you saw the sign, the sign was supposed to point to me. You saw the sign, and it pointed to the food. You don't believe in the food, you believe in me. I am the bread of life. The people did not get this, so... Back to our text there in, in verse 12, John 12, 12. Um, so we see here there's yet this other large crowd. They, they are in Jerusalem already for the Passover feast, and they hear that Jesus is coming back to Jerusalem. And we understand that this is mission central for the Lord Jesus Christ, Jerusalem. Jesus is going back to Jerusalem after he's been out now on the countryside for a number of weeks doing his ministry. And if you've been going through this gospel of us, you know something's going to happen here. Right? Even, even if you're reading this gospel for the very first time, you know we're, re we're, we're reaching 
a climactic point of the story. Something's going to happen in Jerusalem. And as Jesus enters into the city, this crowd's belief in him is going to be tested. In addition, we can also zoom out and notice where John places the entrance into the city. Last week, we, of course, opened chapter 12 um, by reading the story about Mary's anointing of the Lord Jesus' feet. And Jesus himself interpreted the event as he said, she has anointed me for my burial. We saw that in the other gospel accounts. So he cast the event in terms of um, the Lord's forthcoming death. Um, after this passage, um, we're going to read about Jesus speaking of his own death. As he'll say down in verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Speaking, of course, of his death on his cross. The hour has come. So what we see in John's gospel is he's, is he's forming a bridge here um, between the two passages that both speak very clearly of the Lord Jesus Christ's death. So as we read of Jesus coming into Jerusalem, we know this is not going to end well for him from an earthly perspective. So the celebration then that we witness from the crowd will once again be the right thing to do, but they will be doing it for the wrong reasons. And as the events of the week unfolded, Palm Sunday celebration gave way to the very thing that they could not understand, that the king of Israel came this time not to reign, but to die. And the title king of Jews would not be one that he would be celebrating sitting on the throne of David, but on a cross. And the title itself would be used by Pilate as a derogatory sign as he nailed that above the Lord Jesus Christ's head on the cross in all three languages. So everyone was very clear. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Um, now, I rarely announce the title to my lessons because I'm just teaching the text that the good Lord puts in front of us each week. Um, but there was one title that I knew that I could not give this. The title I could not give it was The Triumphant Entry. And that might be the subheading that you have in your Bibles. I, I bet you in most of your Bibles this morning. But when you read especially John's account, I think it misses his point completely. Um, now what's interesting is this is one of the few instances in the life of Christ that is recorded in all four Gospels. All right, And every Gospel writer puts a, a slightly different emphasis um, on Jesus's entry into Jerusalem. Um, with Matthew's gospel, you might get away with calling it the triumphant entry, um, but not with John. Not with John's gospel. John's emphasis is very much on the forthcoming sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And while we see the crowd rejoicing in John, Luke tells us as Jesus approached the city that he once again began to weep. Luke verse 9, chapter 19, verse 41 gives us insight into what was going on with the Lord Jesus. It says, and, we, and when he, Jesus, drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, with that you, even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within it. And they, speaking of Rome, will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You did not know the time of your coming Messiah. This word uh, wept, um, koleo in the Greek is the same word that we actually saw back in chapter 11 um, as at Lazarus' grave when the women, Mary and Martha and the Jews, koleoed. They, they were weeping aloud, expressing uncontainable, audible grief. That's what this word means. So the, the Lord before when we had seen him weep, wept was the um, word 
for silently, tears just pour down his eyes. Here is, is an expressive, audible weeping as he enters into Jerusalem and sees, Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem. Here, the Lord Jesus Christ is lamenting like one who is mourning over the dead. No matter where Jesus looked, he found cause for weeping. If he was to look back, he saw how the nation had wasted countless opportunities. Because as Jesus says, you did not know the time of your visitation. If he looked within, he saw the spiritual blindness in the people's hearts. Of all people, they should have known this was the fulfillment of their very scriptures. And finally, when Jesus looked around, he saw a deceptive religious system. The temple itself had become a den of thieves, and its religious leaders were seeking to kill the Lord Jesus. The city was filled with pilgrims celebrating the, the Passover feast. The sound of crying lambs being sacrificed echoed all throughout the temple. Their, their blood flowing throughout all the channels. But the hearts of this large crowd would miss the very Lamb of God who would be sacrificed just five days from now and whose blood was to be spilled that alone has the power to atone for sin. Why did Jesus, what did Jesus think of this triumphant entry? Jesus wept. He wept. That's John's announcement. Let's return to our verse now as we see this crowd and their announcing of Jesus' entrance. What is it that they have to say? Verse 13. So they, the crowd, took branches of palm trees and went out meeting him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. The excited crowd cut branches of the date palm trees that are abundant in Jerusalem, and I'm told still are. But the Old Testament doesn't associate palm branches with the Passover. Interestingly enough, we do see them in Leviticus 23 with the Feast of Tabernacles, with booths. However, from my study this weekend, it appears that during the intertestamental period, that 400 years at the end of our Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, um, this became a symbol of victory, celebration, and quite honestly, Jewish nationalism. So immediately, we see the way that the crowd is thinking. It's time to celebrate Israel's rule. Uh, so we can see they haven't picked up on anything that the Lord Jesus has been teaching. That is not what he has said that he's come to do. Now notice also what they are crying out. They shout out, Hosanna. Hosanna comes from two uh, root uh, Hebrew, two uh, words, the root words of the Hebrew, which is save now. Save now. They're, they're literally crying out to Jesus, save us now. Right now as you come in. <laughs> And again, it tells us something about their expectations. And they actually quote scripture. They say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're actually quoting Psalm 118. Um, Psalm uh, 113 to 118 is a, a group of psalms that are referred to or known as the Hillels. Um, these were sung each morning by the temple choir during all of the major feasts. And whenever the people were um, traveling to Jerusalem, they would sing these um, psalms, the Hillels. Um, but the temple choir sang these at, at all the major festivals each morning. And what's in interesting is in the Midrash, the Midrash is the Jewish, um, the equivalent of a Jewish commentary, except it dates all the way back to the first and second centuries. Um, they understood Psalm 18 as being messianic speaking of the Messiah to come. It's a psalm that declares the incoming of the messianic kingdom. 
It's a psalm that rejoices when the kingdom is inaugurated and the Messiah reigns as king on the throne. Psalm 18, verse 25 says, Save now. The same idea. Save now. I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray. Send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. So again, this tells us something about their expectations as they look upon Jesus entering into the city. But there's uh, one more thing there that they add at the very end of their proclamation. They said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So they're declaring Jesus to be their king. Now, if you just look at all of that on the surface of this, it looks like they're doing a really good thing, right? I mean, most of us read this and go, praise God. They're, they're honoring Jesus with prom branches. Uh, they're celebrating his arrival. They're proclaiming, save us now. Um, at least we could say they're, they're looking to the right person for salvation. Uh, they're quoting scripture about him. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they affirm him to be the king. And we might say, well, what's wrong with that? Uh, what is it that maybe th that they've got so wrong, Pastor? Uh, well, when we consider this text for just a moment, and when we reflect onto Luke 19's account that we just read, as Jesus overlooked the city upon his entrance, and he was weeping when he saw it, we continue reading, the Lord pronounces judgment upon the city because they did not know the time of the visitation. We can then see that their worship was that of a worldly deliverer. The worldly king. They wanted a politically or military deliverer who Christ never claimed to be. Jesus was grieved by the people's superficial worship of him. This was not the, the uh, sacrificial, unadulterated, authentic worship that we saw last week from Mary. Not at all. Th this was a worship that smells a lot like Judas Iscariot. Shallow, selfish, superficial. As Jesus entered the city, the time for salvation was not now. The time for salvation was close. But first, Jesus must die on the cross at Calvary for the sins of his people. He is blessed because he comes in the name of the Lord. But to quote Psalm 118 would suggest that the time for the kingdom is now. They're expecting that as he walks into Jerusalem, that he's going to overturn the Roman government and say, this is now my city. <laughs> and when they call him the king of Israel, it is far too small of a title for the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in fact, he's come to be the king of the nations. And they're not thinking properly about the nature of the salvation that the Lord Jesus Christ brings. And so what their announcement does is it fits in exactly with the misunderstanding of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. They expected Jesus to be the one who would wield the sword, who would come in with violence, who would strike down those who had been oppressing them. And that was not the way that Jesus was to come. No. The crowd in John's gospel always provide an opportunity for us to really consider our own hearts. And whether we align with the expectations of the crowd at various points in this story, and though we understand the true nature of Jesus and, and the purpose of his first coming, I think often we can be tempted to behave like, to think um, as this crowd might think. Looking at Jesus as the one who is really just here to fix our earthly problems. Looking at Jesus as the one who's really here just to make our lives more comfortable. Or who's here to just give us what we want. And what we need to do is refresh our hearts continually to the true nature of his coming. And that's what Jesus himself does next. 
as Jesus makes his own announcement. Number three, the Lord Jesus will speak. Verse 14. And Jesus found a donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, here's one of the, the few times when um, I would suggest a change to um, the English translation. Um, at least the ESV starts with the word and. I think NIV just starts with Jesus. But, but here it starts, and Jesus found a young donkey. I think it would actually be better to read it as but. Um, because what Jesus is doing here is he's forming a contrast with the announcement of the crowd that they just made concerning him. So read it this way. But Jesus found a donkey. Now, how does Jesus find a donkey contrast the announcement that has just been made from the crowd? Um, well, one of the reasons is that by entering the city on a donkey, Jesus is intentionally fulfilling another scripture. He plays against Psalm 118 by fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And you likely have a footnote there in your Bible pointing you to that verse, as this is one of the times where we see Jesus is actually intentionally pursuing the fulfillment of a particular prophecy. Um, now, that doesn't lessen its value um, in, in, in any way. If anything, it adds to it. It emphasizes the prophecy. He is consciously fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9 as Jesus knows exactly what he's doing as he finds his donkey and enters into the city riding on it. Because not only is he fulfilling prophecy, but he's also quietly counting, countering the expectations that have been made about him. And he's correcting the expectations in several ways. First of all, he's saying, my salvation that I bring is not now. When you read Zechariah chapter 9, what you see is, is it's an end times passage, an eschatological passage, but one that looks forward to a time that's in the future. My salvation is not now. There's things that I must do before I have to go die on the cross. Additionally, he's correcting their announcement by showing that salvation is not for Israel alone. It's not for Israel alone. So again, we see in Zechariah 9, and you see the prophecy that Jesus is drawing on. It is a prophecy that extends salvation beyond the boundaries of Israel. So Zechariah uh, 9 verse 10 says, And the battle blow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Okay, so you see there much further and he's using it. So by bringing Zechariah 9 and Jesus is saying, my grace goes much further than just Israel. Than just Israel. And then perhaps most significantly, Jesus corrects her announcement by saying, I'm not coming in wielding a sword uh, and with power and might, but I'm coming in humility and lowliness. I'm coming in on a colt, a, a, full, a full of a donkey, the little one, the virgin. If Jesus had been the, the conquering warrior coming in to take over, the, the, the one that the crowd was hoping for, he would have come in on a big white war horse, a stallion. But by choosing the lowly donkey of fowl, Jesus entered into Jerusalem as the humble prince of peace. Only when he returns the second time will Jesus ride in on the white horse. And when he does, he will be called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and in revelation 19 it says he will wage war read revelation 19 he's coming he's coming and he will come in power but but that's not what he's come to do the first time no he comes in the first time in humility riding in on the fowl of a donkey and he's saying my salvation is one of the utmost lowliness that is the means by which that you are being saved Jesus is showing the very essence of the gospel. He comes in lowliness. He comes to die as a means to save. 
And at the same time, he sets for us an example. His salvation becomes a point of imitation for all that would follow him. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, sorry, 16, 24, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Forever, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus is the lowly, humble, servant, savior. And as followers of Christ, we must also walk in a path of humility. And this is the way of the Christian walk. But its application, let's admit it, is so difficult. It's so difficult because it is pride that, that plagues every human heart. However long you've been walking with Christ, there is pride that plagues our heart, and it's always seeking to gain the upper hand in your life. And you alone knows what that looks like. You alone know the set of circumstances that God has ordained for you according to his sovereign will. You alone know every single daily routine and how it is that in those circumstances, pride is always seeking to gain the upper hand. The responsibility that you and I have is to set our pride aside each and every hour and assume the path of humility. Let me just read that short section, what Paul said again in Philippians 2. He said, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man and being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Just as Christ was willing to be lowly, he calls you and I to have the same mind as Christ. Now, I think that John knows how difficult this calling can sometimes be for us. And I say that because of the uh, first two words that he says at verse 15. Fear not. Fear not. Now, what's fascinating is that when you look at Zechariah 9.9, the scripture there says, rejoice greatly. O daughter of Zion. But John takes the verse and he adds his own little note. Fear not. He doesn't say rejoice greatly. He says, fear not, daughter of Zion. And I think this is John's way of, of comforting any of those who would pick up the call of discipleship and follow Christ. Fear not, beloved Fear not, your, your king came on a donkey and laid his life down for a ransom for many. Fear not when things don't go your way because this is the intended path that Christ has for discipleship. Fear not when tragedy comes upon you because God is still in control and he hasn't forgotten you and has a perfect plan for your life. Fear not when things are not as you hope. God is sovereign. He is good. And you're exactly where he wants you to be. Fear not, oh beloved, fear not. Now, we'll close quickly with the, well, we just did the three announcements. So John himself, the crowd, and from Jesus. The text um, kind of turns a corner here, and we see three responses. And these aren't nearly as long. So the responses is to, to Jesus' announcement. And sadly, all of their responses are wrong. None of them are right. So... We see here the first one that we see the responses from the disciples. And uh, as we see, it, it wasn't only the crowd who failed to grasp the significance of what was happening. Notice what it says in verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So the disciples will, will eventually come to understand the true nature of the Lord Jesus Christ's mission. You have to understand the Jews 
had such a difficult time. What do you mean the Messiah must die? A dead Messiah? What are you talking about? But, so they really don't get at this time. Even actually after the Lord's resurrection, we see in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, the disciples will ask Jesus, Lord, uh, will you at this time restore the kingdom uh, to Israel? <laughs> um, it was not until the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, um, after Jesus was glorified, then he said he would send the helper um, down. So that the disciples um, remembered the things that were written and what had been done to him. And we see this throughout the Gospels, in all the Gospels, that the disciples were just slow to, to, to learn. Jesus has taught them over and over again that the Son of Man must die, that he will be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. He, he said this over and over again, and, and we remember that immediately after Jesus telling them that, the disciples one of the times, they started to argue who would be at the right hand of the Lord Jesus. So these guys, both pre-spirit, do not understand. They don't get it. Let's move on to that next group, and we get another response. And this time, it is, again, from the crowd. The crowd's response to what happened. Verse 17, now the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb. So, so we have two different crowds here. The crowd that's already at the Passover feast. And this other crowd, remember all these people who had come to witness Jesus and Lazarus, that, that he had indeed done what he did? That there's a crowd that is also following him. So, so this is the second crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. Now again, this seems like a great response. They're bearing witness to Christ. Uh, they're testifying to what Jesus had done when Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. But I want you to notice verse 18. This is a very rare uh, explanatory comment that we get from John. He says in verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. John is here telling us, that the reason why the people are coming to Jesus is because they heard what Jesus had done, that he had raised Lazarus from the dead. He's telling us that's the reason why, okay? And he doesn't want us to miss this. He doesn't want us to miss that the crowd are responding again in a wrong way. He's revealing a superficial nature to their faith. The crowd, again, likes something that they see about Jesus, they like something that they see, but they're not believing in him the right way. What the crowd likes is he's able to raise dead people back to life. They're coming to him because he did something that they like. If he can raise dead people, what else can this man do? Surely he can overtake Rome for us. In chapter 6, they seek him because he feeds them. Jesus answered, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but they saw the sign. They experienced the sign. Jesus made fishes and loaves to feed all of the people more food than they had probably ever eaten in their life. They saw the sign. What do you mean? The sign is a pointer. You don't go to a sign and sit at the sign and say that you've arrived. If the sign says you're going to the mall or whatever, you go to the, where it's pointing to. They sat there at the sign. The sign was pointing to Jesus Christ. He says, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. It's easy. We like this guy because he feeds us lots of food. We like this guy because he raises dead people to life. We like this guy because he fixes our immediate problems. That's the reason why John's saying they're following him. And that's the reason why they're bearing witness. Now, were there some there who had authentic faith? Of course, there was. When, when there were those that were there and witnessed Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, we heard what it was about. They witnessed the glory of God. Remember, it was all about the glory of God being revealed through the person of the Son. 
they saw the sign that pointed directly to Jesus Christ, and they worshipped him. They didn't see Jesus as someone who would just give them stuff. No, they saw Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, and they believed. They believed. But overall, we see Jesus weeps for his people. He weeps for this people. Overall, the, the corporate testimony of, the, of these crowds is one that's completely missing the point. Completely missing the point. We'll close with verse 19, where we'll see the last response, and it comes from the Pharisees. The Pharisees. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is the first time that the Pharisees have been mentioned in the short little passage. And from their perspective, the worst nightmare has come to pass, right? All of those around Jesus are now proclaiming Jesus to be the king, right? And in spite of their best efforts to silence the Lord, they begin to blame each other. This is the last thing that they, that they wanted to witness. Um, if you've ever been to Jerusalem before or even just seen uh, pictures, um, you can imagine one of those um, great big city gates there. And a, a, as you enter into the city, and imagine just the sea of people flooding through in celebratory fashion for the Lord Jesus Christ. The historical record suggests that there was an upwards to a million people at this feast at this time of year. And they're all chanting, here's the king of Israel. Um, this is the worst nightmare for the Pharisees. And in particular, their, their jealousy relates to the fact that, that non-Jews are now going after him. Look, the world, the world has gone after him. Now this, um, of course, is, 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 is hyper, hyperbolic, but, um, or hyperbole, but there's a, a level of irony here also when the Pharisees say this. In John's gospel, um, that word for, for world, cosmos, is often used to mean the things that are not of God, all right? In, in, in John's um, first uh, epistle, he'll say, do not love the world or the things in the world. Um, so there's a bit of a wordplay here that, that John is pleased to give to us. And his point is, 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 look, even the people that are not the people of God, even they have now gone after Jesus. Uh, even the Pharisees see it. They mean to say, oh, great, look, now, now uh, Jews and even non-Jews are going after this guy. And again, th there was this spiritual pride that sent in amongst the people of Israel. Um, that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was their God. That was their salvation. Uh, he wasn't a God to the nations. And his salvation is for us and us alone. And so you see the disdain in their mouth of, of, of these holier-than-thou Pharisees. Look, now the whole world's gone after this guy, right? And by the way, it's no accident, no accident that the very next statement of verse 19 is followed by some Greeks seeking after Christ in verses 20 and 21. That's an intentional connection that John is giving us. The world has gone after him, and then the very next thing that happens is Greeks show up and say, we wish to see Jesus. <laughs> it's great. We wish to see Jesus. And the Pharisees cannot comprehend is that God's grace is, is intended to go far beyond Israel. And I would suggest that it is through the Lord's lowly humility that they find him to be so compelling. That there's something about this man that's not self-seeking. But that Jesus is coming in, not on a war horse, not with an army behind him, but on a lowly donkey. It, it's that very curious entry that provokes the interest, I think, of these Greeks. And again, if we think about the example that Jesus is setting before us here we have to understand that as we seek to be those that put god's glory on display in our lives he will not be magnified properly as long as pride is gaining the upper hand in our life god will not be magnified in our life as long as we're indulging in our pride 
by contrast, humility is strangely attractive. Humility is strangely compelling to the outside world. And they can't quite put their finger on it. But there's something that draws them towards the Lord's grace when they see a humble, lowly servant of Christ. I was reading a, an old essay from um, my time in seminary that I was going to use for our, my Thursday discipleship group. And uh, there was this book by Liam Murray, and he was writing about uh, what it is to be holy. And he was talking about how one of the essential uh, parts of holiness is humility. And he writes, there's a great paradox in the Christian life. The Christian is a son or daughter of God, an heir of glory, a possessor of eternal life. He knows God in Christ and has begun to be like him. Yet, far from being proud of himself, he thinks very differently about himself than the way he used to think before he was a Christian. In the presence of God, he knows that he's an unworthy sinner. And the more he knows Christ, the less he thinks of himself. A little later on, he makes the point that you can argue all day long with the outside world and they'll have their list of ideas and reasons and facts on why they can't believe in the existence of God or for the truth of the resurrection. And they'll have all their responses and their arguments. But Murray writes, but there is no response for a transformed life. The world has no answer for a transformed life. When they see a man or woman changed at the very core from being proud to being humble, there is nothing that they can say. It just simply testifies to the work of Christ, the power of the gospel, a sinner saved by grace, the old made new. And so the response that we should show to Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem is one that praises him that he didn't come on a war horse. It's one that praises him that the time of salvation was not yet. One that praises him that the cross came before the crown. And the call of Jesus today is one of humility. He said, if there anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And then, by God's grace, we set about every single day dying to self dying to self, submitting ourselves to God's will, and demonstrating humility so that the world may see the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. At this time, I'd like to invite the leaders down front here. If you need uh, prayers this morning, or if God's spoken to your heart today, we'd love to talk to you or pray with you. Will you please stand as we sing the song of invitation, Oh, come to the altar.